My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Season 5 of the 21st Century Creative. Goodness, how the world has changed since we were last together. When I started the 21st Century Creative podcast, I said we were living at a time of great uncertainty and insecurity, which now feels like the understatement of the century. Looking back at Season 4 last year, It feels like it exists in a lost age of innocence where we took so many freedoms for granted, not to mention our health and the lives of people who are no longer with us. So we've all experienced a lot of change since last season. But one thing that hasn't changed is that this show is designed to help you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands and distractions challenges and opportunities of the 21st century. And let's face it, those challenges are coming thick and fast, so we have our work cut out. If you're new to the show, my name is Mark McGuinness. I'm a poet and a coach for creative professionals based in the UK, and I've created the show to share what I've learned on the creative path, as well as the wisdom and experience of my guests. During each season, I send out a new episode every Monday for 10 weeks. In the first part of each episode, I share some of my own ideas to help you grow as a person, as a creator, and as a professional. And in the second part, I interview a guest who's doing great work in the arts or the creative industries, or a creative entrepreneur, or someone who is an expert in a field of personal development that's relevant to you as a creative. So, for example, this season, my guests include a musician who's making a sustainable living while actively avoiding exposure on the big stage and the big platforms. A renowned expert in the field of artificial intelligence and creativity. A novelist who sold hundreds of thousands of books while writing and travelling the US in an Airstream trailer with her family. An illustrator who found an unusual canvas for her illustrations and built a successful studio around it. And a printer who cycled round the entire British Isles and interviewed practitioners of traditional crafts along the way. I want each episode to be as practically helpful as possible for you. So, when I interview a guest, I'm always listening out for what you and I can learn from their example and asking questions that will prompt them to share the learnings from their achievements and their setbacks. And at the end of every interview, I ask my guests to set you a creative challenge based on the theme of the interview. This is something practical that you can do or get started on within seven days of listening to the interview, and which will stretch you creatively and personally in a meaningful way. 
Now, it's been a longer gap than I intended since season four, and the process of producing this season has been the most protracted and in some ways the most challenging of all of them. You see, I recorded most of the interviews in the last quarter of 2019, but production was held up by a few things I had to work on and in the background, some of which I'll share with you next week. But I just got through that big bottleneck and thought, right, now I can get back to normal. And then coronavirus landed. So my first priorities were obviously to make sure my family was safe and deal with the challenges of lockdown, and also to help my coaching clients come to terms with the disruption, which in some cases was severe. But when the dust had cleared a little and I got back to the podcast, I realised I had a whole season of material that didn't mention the pandemic. Starting with the interviews, I'd recorded nine out of ten interviews, and I decided to leave them as they were, because they're all great conversations about evergreen topics that are still relevant for us now. In fact, some of the ideas in the interviews are even more relevant right now. And in these cases, I've said something about this in my introduction to that interview. Another reason for leaving the interviews unchanged is, I think with corona overload, it will probably be a refreshing change to listen to a conversation that doesn't mention the virus. There is one interview that I did record post-COVID, so in that case you get some great insights from my guest about the challenges we're facing. But apart from the interviews, I decided it was important to rewrite large chunks of the rest of the show. I mean, it would have been a bit weird (laughs) and not very helpful to put out an entire season that didn't mention the virus. So, particularly in the first few episodes of this season, I've shared some thoughts in the first part of the show about how we can all start to come to terms with a new reality and use our creativity and our resilience to see us through. Inevitably, that meant yet another delay to the show, but I thought it was worth it to create a season that would be as helpful and relevant as possible. These ideas came firstly from my own experience of adjusting to the disruption, and fortunately it turned out I was better equipped than many to deal with it, because I've been working at home for many years, coaching clients via video call and the internet, so thankfully I've been able to keep working and serving my clients. I know a lot of people have had extra time on their hands during the pandemic and they're putting it to great use, but I've actually been working harder than usual and I'm very grateful that that's the case. And a lot of the ideas I'll share with you this season came out of serving my clients, helping them to stay calm, focused and creative in the eye of the storm. In a few cases, They had to reinvent their work and their business very quickly. So I can certainly say the ideas have been tried and tested. So I've done my best to make season five of the 21st Century Creative a source of ideas and encouragement at a challenging time for all of us. And I hope you find it helpful and sustaining over the next 10 weeks. And If you want some more help in rising to the challenge, there are a couple of ways I can do that, one of which is brand new for this season. As always, my coaching practice is open. I currently have a small number of places available, 
And as always, these are for experienced creatives who typically have at least five to ten years' experience and who want to raise their game big time. So, if that sounds like you and you're interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Now, as I say, I only have a few places available for one-to-one coaching, and there's a limit to the number of people that I can fit on my schedule. I also realise that not everybody wants that level of support, and particularly right now, there are probably more people than usual who could do with a little help on a smaller budget. So, this season, I am stepping up my commitment to you via a Patreon membership where I will help you stay focused, motivated, creative and productive, whatever the century throws at us. And that means I'll be creating a series of exclusive videos for 21st Century Creative members. At the start of a new podcast season, I'll be inviting you to look ahead at the 10 weeks that the podcast will be running and set yourself a goal for what you want to achieve during this time. We'll check in during the season to hold ourselves accountable for progress on our goals. And I'll also be doing Q&A videos, answering questions from members about their goals and challenges, and also about issues that come up in the podcast episodes. So, if you enjoy the podcast and you want my help applying the ideas to your own situation, this is your chance. A Patreon membership is something I've been planning for a while, and the timing feels good in terms of being able to help more of you than I can through individual coaching, and for you to get my help without the kind of commitment that coaching involves. And to make it as accessible as possible, especially right now, I'm launching it on a pay-what-you-want basis, with a minimum contribution of $1 per episode. So hopefully that means, if you want to do this, then you can. You can find out more about the Patreon membership at patreon.com slash the 21st century creative. And I'll tell you a bit more about it later in today's show. But right now, let's get started on season five by looking at the big challenge we're all facing and how creativity can help us make it through. Our creativity has never been so crucial. Our world has been turned upside down. It may be broken forever, given that we may never get back entirely to the life we had before. And right now, the entire world is dependent on creativity. Across the globe, scientists are racing to create new tests, treatments and vaccines to detect, cure and prevent the virus. For millions of people, this is a matter of life and death. It's also a matter of life and death for our society. If we want to return and rebuild, we need our researchers to succeed in their creative endeavours. Meanwhile, Medical staff are having to be creative as well as courageous, 
finding ways to deliver treatment in very challenging conditions, often without the essential equipment they need to protect themselves and their patients. Our leaders are trying to make sense of it all, devising strategies and organising the medical and scientific response. They're also having to create new ways to reconfigure society and bolster the economy to cope with the pandemic. And even if you and I aren't in the lab or the hospital or directing operations, we are all having to dig deep and use our creativity to get us through. We're having to find new ways to organize our work and our family life, juggling the demands of working from home, taking care of our families, and in many cases, homeschooling children and or coping with a sudden loss of income. On a lighter note, we've seen a welcome explosion of creativity as a way to let off steam, from singing on balconies during lockdown to a stream of videos, songs, poems, jokes, and other media designed to lift our spirits, give us a laugh and a bit of respite, and help each other keep going. And in your own creative career or business, this is likely to be a pivotal time. Depending on your creative field, you may be lucky enough to be able to keep working or have suddenly seen your work completely dry up. In response to all of this, you're facing a crucial question right now. Should you hold steady on your current course, or reinvent yourself by doing something new? I've seen this in my coaching practice over the past few weeks. Some clients have been massively disrupted and have to reinvent themselves fast. So I've been spending time helping them stay calm, brainstorming new approaches, and putting them into practice. Others are able to carry on, at least in theory. Their challenge is to stay focused on their most important work, in spite of everything that threatens to knock them off their course. And quite a few of them are using this opportunity to push ahead on self-started creative projects, Screenplays, art projects, videos, music, books, and courses. The kind of project that could be a game changer for their career, but which is usually hard to prioritize against other demands. So, if you're feeling unsure about how you should respond to the current situation, ask yourself where will your creativity make the biggest difference right now? By doubling down on the work you were already doing? Or by reinventing yourself and trying something new? Both require courage, but seeing the difference requires clarity. So take some time, if you're not sure, to really get clear about which it is for you. Start by doing whatever it is that helps you stay calm and find clarity, whether that's writing, journaling, meditating, going for a walk, talking it through with a friend, or whatever. Then have a look around at your peers. Not the ones who are consumed with anxiety and rushing to blame other people for the problems, but the ones who are being creative and resourceful in the face of chaos and stepping up as leaders to help others. 
What are they doing right now? What are they saying? What can you learn from their example? And if you have a creative practice and you're struggling to keep it up in the face of all of this, then remember, your creativity has never been so crucial. Don't listen to the voice that tells you that writing or making music or art or whatever it is is fiddling while Rome burns. Because not only will doing your creative work make you feel better in the moment, it will also help you to respond in a more creative and a more resourceful way to all the other challenges you're facing right now. So, as I said earlier, this season I'm stepping up my commitment to you by launching a 21st century creative Patreon membership designed to help you apply the ideas from the podcast to your own situation. So here's how it works. When you sign up at patreon.com slash the 21st century creative, you'll become a 21st century creative member with access to exclusive videos and other content. The first thing we'll do at the start of each podcast season from now on is to set our intention for what we each want to achieve over the 10 weeks of the podcast season. It's a nice way to use the season as a way to focus our efforts and say, for this period, we're really going to commit to creating something new and meaningful. So, This week, I'm sending an exclusive video to the members to talk about some of the principles of goal setting and help you focus on what you want to achieve. I'll also practice what I preach and share my own goal for the next 10 weeks. Plus, you'll be able to leave a comment under the video where you share your own goal for what you want to achieve in the next 10 weeks. So this is a lovely way that we can all give each other a bit of encouragement and support. And obviously, there's that public commitment that we are sharing it with our fellow members. It could be a creative project or a new habit or a change in the way you communicate or a goal for your business or something else that will give you a sense of achievement and move your creative career forward. I'll make a couple of follow-up videos halfway through the season and then after the final episode specifically to help us review progress on our goals and share what we've learned from the process. As well as the goal-setting videos, I'm going to be doing some Q&A videos where I respond to members' questions, whether they're about topics I've covered in the podcast or challenges you're facing or goals you want to achieve. So if you've ever listened to me talking on the podcast and thought, that's all very well, Mark, but how does it apply to my situation? Or if there's a topic I haven't covered and you want to get my view on it, Or if you're facing a challenge or working towards a goal and you'd like to ask me a question about it, then this is your chance. I'll also be sharing occasional behind-the-scenes videos about the projects I'm working on, recommended books I'm reading, and tips and techniques that aren't featured on the podcast. And if you ask me nicely, I might even tell you about my new secret podcast that will complement the 21st Century Creative that I'll be launching later this year. Now, 
In terms of the membership fee, I was originally thinking I'd have different levels of membership where you get access to different stuff depending on how much you pay. But in the light of the current situation, where I know money's tighter than usual for many of you, I've decided to have just one membership level where you get access to everything and you decide on the membership fee. It's on a pay-what-you-want basis. So practically, the way that works is you pay a fixed amount of money per episode of the podcast that I release. The default setting is one US dollar per episode. And there are 10 episodes per season, so the default is you pay $10 for the membership program over the course of the season. And you only pay for it during the season. You do have the option of increasing the fee you pay per episode. And that will, of course, be very welcome if you have the means and the desire to support the show at that level. It will be really helpful and very encouraging for me. But look, if money is remotely tight for you right now, please do not think twice about leaving it at the default of a single dollar. I want this to be accessible and available to you if you want it. And hopefully a dollar an episode will mean that's true for you. So that's the way it works. And I hope you find it a good way to get some more help from me and support from your fellow 21st century creatives. Another way to look at the Patreon membership is that it's a way you can support the show and help me produce it. Because, as I've said many times, I can't do this alone. I'm relying on your help as listeners and advocates for the show to help me. I hope it's evident that I spend a lot of time making the show. I reckon for every one-hour episode, it takes me personally at least six or seven hours to research, write, record, and edit the material. And that's just me. It doesn't include the time Javier Whaler and his team at Breaking Waves spend producing it. I've had really great feedback from lots of you about the production values of the show, and that's because Javier and his team are some of the best in the business at sound production. Javier was actually a guest in the show in season two, so if you heard that interview, you'll know he's a very successful musician and producer. He spent eight years as the drummer in the band's Stereophonics. He also currently plays with Phil Manzanera of Roxy Music fame. So we are very lucky to have Javier and his team on the job. Javier composed all the music and sound effects for the show, and he goes to incredibly painstaking lengths to get the best possible audio quality, including making up for a few mistakes I make in the recording process. As well as the sound production, I provide full transcripts for the interviews, which you can always find in the show notes at 21stcenturycreative.fm. I tried various automated solutions for this, but they weren't accurate enough. So I hire a human transcription service to transcribe every episode. And then my VA, Alexandra Amor, goes through every interview with a fine-tooth comb, checking for mistakes and formatting them nicely for the web page. I know not everyone reads the transcripts, but it's important they're there in terms of accessibility. And I have a hardcore group of people who say they hate listening to audio, but love reading the transcripts. So, producing the show at this level and engaging the various professionals to help me do it requires me to invest money as well as time. Of course, the show does help me find coaching clients, and I've found some wonderful clients via the show, 
who listen to it and then get in touch to ask for my help one-to-one. And each time I start work with a new client, that's time away from producing the show. I do my best to prioritize the podcast, but of course, my clients will always come first. So if there is funding coming in directly from the show itself via Patreon, it will make it easier to carve out more time to make the show, meaning I can produce more seasons more often. So by becoming a 21st Century Creative member, you're not only getting access to my help, you're also helping me produce the show and make it sustainable for the long term. Hopefully, that makes it a win-win for all of us. Okay, that's that for the 21st Century Creative Membership. You can learn more about it and join the group at patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. And now, it's time to get started on our first interview of Season 5. John T. Unger is an artist who makes art on a big scale, and an artist who takes full advantage of the opportunities of the 21st century to both make and market his work. From performing his poetry on stage at Lollapalooza in 1996, to bartering a mosaic to a bank as a down payment for a house and studio, to displaying an American flag made from over 20,000 Budweiser bottle caps at the 2015 Stagecoach Music Festival, John's art practice has been as much about making good stories as making good art. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, Smithsonian Magazine, and many other newspapers, magazines, books, and TV shows. He's best known for his sculptural fireballs, which he makes from scrap industrial steel, cutting by hand with a plasma torch at 45,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which, he says, is 4.5 times as hot as the surface of the sun or the Earth's core. Since 2005, he's sold more than 2,000 fireballs, shipping to all 50 US states and over 20 countries. Fireball clients include Calvin Klein and many restaurants, hotels, churches, and public spaces. His current project, Anatomy Set in Stone, is his biggest and most ambitious yet. Using marble, stone, and precious gems, he's creating a series of 14 life-size mosaics that replicate a series of anatomical engravings by the 16th century artist Bartolomeo Eustachi. Each mosaic is seven feet high by four feet wide and presents the figures at life size so that viewers can stand before them and see anatomy as though looking in a mirror. The project requires John to cut over three miles of stone by hand, spending several years and tens of thousands of dollars to fashion it into 392 square feet of detailed mosaic. When he finishes, John's ambition is to turn the engravings into a touring exhibition for museums and galleries around the world. 
I first met John back in 2009 when I interviewed him for my blog, and we've stayed in touch ever since. To me, he's a great example of the 21st century artist, prepared to go out on a limb and do just about everything differently, from design and manufacturing to marketing and business models. As you'll hear in the interview, he's always been prepared to put himself on the line for his art which has led to some dangerous situations as well as amazing adventures. I reached out to John and asked if he'd be prepared to come on the show and share some of his stories and hard-won wisdom with you, and he was his usual generous and entertaining self in this conversation. It's one that should be of interest to any 21st century creative, regardless of your own creative discipline. And like most of the interviews this season, this one was recorded before coronavirus took the world by storm, so we obviously don't talk about that. But I think this is a great interview to kick off the new season, because John's energy and resilience are the kind of qualities we all need to display right now. So, if you're curious about what happens when you approach your work and your career in a boldly unorthodox manner, strap yourself in for this conversation with John T. Unger. John, at what stage did you start to think of yourself as an artist? Huh. Kind of always. I mean, I've made things since I was a a wee little kid. I got my first jackknife when I was four and started making things um, with the second one because the bullies across the street stole the first one, actually. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the McNally brothers. But they um, didn't stop you. No, nobody can. <laughs> nobody does. <laughs> anyway, um, no, I've always made things. And, and initially, you know, my big love was was reading, but I've always loved making things too. And I, I thought I wanted to be a poet for a living. And I spent about 15 years trying to do that, um, even winning a poetry slam and performing live on stage at Lollapalooza. But, um, you know, and I was invited to tour with the show, but it was at your own expense. You weren't being paid. You couldn't work oh, really? while you were doing it. Um, you know, it wasn't and that was the thing with poetry is, you know, literally I would have people come up to me at readings and say, oh, that poem changed my life. And I'd be like, hey, I've got a book of them here for $6. And they'd be like, nah. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, okay, I obviously didn't change your life enough, buddy. Um, <laughs> not so much as a hamburger's worth, you know. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I spent a, a lot of my late teens and 20s um, trying to find ways not to have a job so I could focus on poetry and reading and writing, you know, all day, every day. Um, and there was always a side hustle. You know, That's a familiar scenario to me, yeah. Right, you know, and so, I mean, at one point in time, I was making jewelry and hats in Seattle and selling them on the street so I could be a poet, or I was playing music in the street, busking, playing harmonica so I could be a poet. Um, and then eventually... You know, I wanted to make books, and I'd, I'd given up on the idea of a publisher doing it, and so I was going to self-publish, and I learned graphic design. And then I did that for a living, you know, while I wrote poems. And then I started doing artwork 
partly because I really wanted to own artwork and I couldn't afford the stuff I liked, which in retrospect is sort of, I mean, mostly I liked African and Haitian work that's pretty affordable as art goes. Um, but not if you're a poet. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, so I made my own and, um, and eventually I realized, oh, you know, people will pay for artwork. Um, and when we had the first big uh, crash of the internet, the, um, you know, around 2000 or whatever, um, all of the design work dried up. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to invest in learning to do something else for dollars. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to go full time into making art. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pay my bills with it. I'm not going to work. Um, and I sort of realized, you know, if I took the eight to 10 hours, depending on commute, that had been for a day job and spent that time learning how to sell and market my artwork and doing that, then I could spend all night making the artwork the same as I'd been doing while I had paying work. Um, you know, it was really sketchy. I had to couch surf for a couple of years, and um, but I made it work, you know, and I have, you know, I had a lot of friends at that time who had gone to art school. I, I started really doing the art in Chicago, and it was a great place. I was in a neighborhood called Pilsen, which was where all the artists moved when Wicker Park gentrified. Um, so there were like, you know, probably 500 working artists, some of whom were making a living, most of whom weren't. But it was a great community for me to learn how to not just do the artwork, but how to get into shows and court galleries and, you know, all of, all of the business and social parts of it that I wouldn't have known because I was self-taught. And so right from the beginning, you, you made a conscious decision to address both sides of this, the making of art, but also the, the business and social aspects of it. Yeah, you know, and I'm better at some parts of that than others, which is probably true for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, it's funny because a lot of the time in an arts community, or at least in the one where I was in Chicago, you know, the the art buying public was um people were, were at odds with it it was like people felt like oh it's people who come down to our dicey neighborhood uh from the suburbs and we have nothing in common but sometimes they buy art and you know and i at first you sort of roll with that and then you go well wait a minute you know a they're making a trip to your part of town which you're not doing for them mm -hmm. um and b they wouldn't be here if they weren't interested in the art and if they're interested in it especially enough to give you money then you know odds are you do have other things in common mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and and over the years that's proved very true like you know most of some of the customers i have you know just click a button on the internet and there's, you know, they buy a thing, I ship it to them. There's no communication. There doesn't have to be. Um, but the people I have interacted with for the most part have been really cool people, you know? Um, and some of them have actually become friends. Um, you know, some of them I'm just like, well, thank you for making this possible. Well, they obviously have really good taste, right? <laughs> I like to think so, right? <laughs> so, no, but, you know, it was, it was that sort of early period where I, I left Chicago because, um, every, you know, I, I, lost, I lost the paying work I had and everything fell apart. I lost my place and the end of my thumb and my girlfriend, 
all of the things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I went, went back to where I grew up because there was some free rent there, but there really was no culture. I mean, it's, you know, the top of the lower peninsula of Michigan. Um, it's, you know, six hours north of Detroit. Um, there's just, yes, there are artists. Um, but because it's a very conservative place, it's, you know, mostly going to be landscape painters and things, um, which is fine, but not my thing. Um, you know, and I got stuck there for about 10 years. I, I had a fortuitous event where I was leasing a former convenience store and house with an option to buy that was really not very realistic because it was early days and I was just barely scraping by. And winter came and the studio building started making scary noise and I went up on the roof to get the snow off and the building fell right out from under me. <laughs> it just collapsed. And, you know, I jumped off. I was fine. I have reflexes. I have to. Um, <laughs> but well, where did um, you land? <laughs> uh, in, in a lot of snow. So it broke the fall nicely. Um, <laughs> I mean, the snow was like, I don't know, six feet tall or something. It was ridiculous. I had, I had purchased the two acres that got more snow than any place else for hundreds of miles, I think. Um, Lake effect snow in a valley. Um, but anyway, you know, the bank came out to look at the damage and they saw the artwork I was making. And it was a, you know, it was a house that they had repossessed or whatever the real estate word is. Um, and they didn't want the house and I still kind of did. Um, and they proposed that I do a big mosaic sign for their main branch office as the down payment. Um, and that's what made it viable. And so I finally had a house and studio that I could work out of that was, you know, I mean, like the house payment was $300 a month. It was nothing. Um, so that was a really good launching pad, you know. Wow, and, so that's how you got on the property ladder. Yeah, and the, you know, the collapse of the building knocked out the natural gas. So there was no heat or water because the pump froze um, for the entire winter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just had like a kerosene heater that wasn't meant for indoors and probably lost some brain cells to monoxide. Um, but that was when a friend of mine suggested I should start a blog. And, you know, this was back in the day when there were probably about 500 blogs on the planet. I mean, it was a pretty new thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at first I thought, he was nuts, but I mean, I had time on my hand and I was freezing. So, <laughs> so I converted my, you know, website to a blog and, you know, really went at it. Um, and I, I was looking up before our conversation, the first piece of art I sold online was a little luminary on uh, June 4th, 2005, which was like exactly two weeks before Etsy even launched. So there was no... This was still when it was really uncool to be commercial on the internet. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know. had Brian Clark talking about that last season and the, the amount of vitriol that he got in some quarters for daring to suggest that a blog might be useful for selling things. Yeah, and, you know, it was, it was also when everything was still a very fresh startup, if it existed at all, and you could actually... Hmm. You know, at that point in time, blogging companies and social media companies, well, social media didn't even exist yet. Um, but in the early days, they were very consumer focused. They wanted to make a big platform people wanted. So they were responsive to users in a way that they're not anymore. Um, yeah. 
you know, and you could call the GM of TypePad um, or other. Like I, I talked to a lot of people in the development um, departments of a lot of the early uh, social media companies and, and web hosting companies. And it was like, yeah, you know, I have this idea for, you know, a blog that is also a store. And, um, hmm. you know, it was really funny. Nobody wanted to do that. And it wasn't until years later, like, um, I guess I was apparently the 10th person to sign up for Shopify and Shopify was a store that had a blog. Mm -hmm. Um, but in a way that's not quite the same thing. Um, (laughs) and, um, and the problem then with Shopify is it's built on Ruby on rails. And so you really need to learn a whole new kind of coding to change it. Um, and I had, I really struggled with that. Um, and it's important to say too, like I was pretty motivated to make decent money in the beginning because, you know, A, I hadn't had any, B, I had bought a house, but a house that had fallen down. And the other, the rest of the house seemed like it might do that any minute. Mm-hmm. And I really needed to get out of there into a better place. Um, so I needed, you know, to save up for a down payment on a real house. Then we looked at a bunch of different places, and eventually we wound up here in Hudson, New York. Again, thanks to somebody I met through blogging, um, Marianne Davis, who's a potter, who um, you know I met on the internet first when she was blogging in the early days, and then you know at South by Southwest and met her in person. And then she's like, "Oh, you should look at upstate New York. You should look at Hudson." And um, I sort of had always just assumed that everything north of the city was million dollar homes for weekends um for people who lived in the city but but you know honestly a lot of a lot of upstate new york is former mill towns that are rather affordable or were (laughs) um (laughs) so you know we wound up here it would have been nice to get here 10 years earlier but we have a you know beautiful 150 year old farmhouse on top of a little mountain with a view of the mountains and um it's a really, and a big 3,000 square foot barn that's probably about 150 years old. That's the metal shop. Um, and a little barn for storage. And sadly, the, the mosaics I'm doing and the steel work that I do can't happen in the same place. You can't have marble dust on your welds and you can't have rust on your stone. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I've kind of commandeered half of the ground floor of our house of the mosaic studio and you know fortunately i married somebody who knew what she was getting into with an artist (laughs) and who's very supportive and you know we we didn't really use the living room and dining room anyway um we don't do that much entertaining um so so you've got this setup where your work and your your life are really intertwined and I mean, we're recording this interview a little later than most interviews, as I gather you work pretty late. Maybe you could talk us through your working day and maybe it goes into the night as well. Oh, it does. You know, um, I've, I've always had a really weird, like left to my own devices, I would be awake 20 hours and sleep 10. That's what my biology wants to do. Um, but you can't really, and you could do that as a poet who didn't have, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. have a job or anything, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I did. Um, but if you want to have a marriage and a business, you really can't have your day shifting forward six hours every day. It just makes it impossible to plan anything. Um, so I've kind of adapted and it works better for me to be awake at night. So I get up around noon, um, have a, you know, have coffee for a couple of hours, do anything that requires nine to five um, scheduling in the remaining couple hours of the day. Um, and then, you know, Marcy and I sit down together to dinner pretty much every day. I, I In the early days, the art always came first, and that's why all of my ex-girlfriends are ex-girlfriends. Um, you know, if you did an entry poll and an exit poll of those relationships, why did you date him? Why did you leave him? The answers would be exactly the same. Oh, he's so creative. Oh, he's so dedicated to his art. <laughs> you know, and... Um, and when Marcy came along, I was like, you know, I got to do this different. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it, it was a very big shift from how I've operated the rest of my life. And I'm like, okay, from dinner until she goes to bed is time that we spend together. And that's just mm -hmm. sacrosanct. Um, and she, you know, she's the opposite. We pass each other in the morning a lot. She gets up at like five or six in the morning most of the time. Um, so, so what works really well is actually we have a really good block of time that we spend together and we see each other throughout the day or we used to when, when she was unemployed, she's a nurse now. So now she's got jobs or she's got work. Um, but, um, you know, we get, we get time to be to ourselves, which we both appreciate and we get time together. Um, and it works really well. But anyway, so, you know, then she goes to bed and, um, and then, you know, I'll noodle around for an hour or two and then get going on the mosaic and usually work until like three in the morning and spend a couple hours winding down with some whiskey and screaming media and go to bed. <laughs> so, that sounds like a perfect routine. It's, you know, it, it works out. Um, if I were more ambitious, I would do things differently, but, um, and I did, you know, and that's the thing when I was in my twenties and I had nothing and I really wanted to have something, um, you know, I would go to the day job for 10 hours, including commute. And I would work another 10 hours at night in the studio and I would sleep four hours and do it again. And, um, you know, there's a lot I don't even remember from that period of my life because if you get no sleep, <laughs> your brain yeah. doesn't do a lot of long-term memory. Right. Um, you know, um, it's all a bit of a blur. Um, okay, so you, you touched on the mosaics, which I want to come back to. But before we get there, the, the thing that you're best known for over the years has been the Great Bowls of Fire. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about what they are, where the inspiration came from, and, and, and how that side of your work works? Sure. I mean, those, those have been, you know, I've been doing them for about 14 years now. Um, and the inspiration was, I, I, when I started out, I was using recycled materials almost exclusively for all my art. And part of that was, you know, an ecological idea. Part of it was that it was more affordable when I was starting out. 
Um, part of it was that I just have this deep abiding love of objects and materials and historical things. And I spend a lot of time looking at objects and materials and thinking about them. And when I see things, a lot of my early work was um, turning one thing into another. Um, and it was sort of this alchemy. And I thought, you know, like I made uh, masks out of shovel blades because they're shaped like a face. That was cool. Um, mm -hmm. And so on. So I was in the scrapyard shopping for materials and saw them cutting up this propane tank. And the end cap of it fell off and became this large bowl. And I was like, oh my God. Um, hmm. You know, because making a giant bowl like that isn't something you can do in very well any art studios there's like about six factories in the u.s that stamp these things out with a big stamp the size of a house um right <laughs> you know and there aren't seven or you know maybe there are yeah. there aren't very yeah. many um yeah. and so i saw this thing and immediately i had the idea for the great bowl of fire of cutting flame shapes around the edge of it to make it into a a bowl that you would have fire in, uh, a fire pit. Um, and at that point in time, nobody had ever done anything like this with that. Um, obviously, there were fire pits, but there weren't very many artistic ones. They were mostly mass-produced, um, or they were masonry um, and custom-built. Um, so I had this idea, and I loved it because it's like, okay, I'm taking this container for flammable gas, and using a torch to cut flame shapes in it so that you can have a fire in it that you could even plumb for gas if you want. It was just like fire all the way down. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of how I think about the work I make is I like, because I started as a poet and because that was so much about metaphor um, and because the art that I studied most was African and Haitian art, which is mostly you know, got some religious component and so has meaning. But yeah. the, the the materials used in that kind of work, there are a lot of puns, there are a lot of, you know, metaphors where power derives from the thing having these characteristics. And so that's, that's really informed what I do going forward. And um, so I came up with this, you know, great bowl of fire and i thought it was really neat um you know it got a mention on boing boing that was cool um you know years later it got into the new york times and that sent us about you know fifty thousand dollars worth of customers or more um which was nice then again it got on it, it was in the middle of the business section and generated somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars worth of orders i mean people still mention that article to me when they buy sometimes um it was on the front page of the home section, a different fireball, but one of my fireballs, a different design, um, between Christmas and New Year's one year. And that was $850 worth of sales because that's the beginning of first quarter, which is slow for us. Nobody buys anything between Christmas uh. and their tax re return. So timing matters. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's just an interesting thing, how much timing matters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it should have done better on the front page of the home section. but no. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, it took about two years to sell the first 50 of those fire pits. Um, 
And then the following year, I sold about 100. And by the time it really peaked, uh, I was doing about $300,000 a year in sales. Um, you know, $300,000 a year from, from sculpted fire pits. Yeah, although, you know. That you, that you were making yourself. Two, two-thirds of that was expenses. Right, but even, but even so, John. I know, right? <laughs> you know, don't be modest. <laughs> and I just shipped number twenty two hundred and a couple more. So I mean, that's that's how many of these things I've made is twenty two hundred and change. Um. Anyway, so you know, for for maybe almost ten years there was almost nothing but fireballs, and I still made the occasional piece of art on the side um, when I was inspired by it, but I was really putting all my energy into the fireballs in the business and growing it because that's what you do in America, although I've rethought that. Um, and, um, you know, I knew that it probably wouldn't last forever. So there was always a side hustle I was developing. I'd take the money I made with the fireballs and spend it developing, say, a mood ring with my friend Chris Carfee, which instead of telling you what mood you were in, it was a hollow glass-faced ring with little emoticons in it, and you could swap them out to tell people what mood you're actually in. Uh, hmm. And we tried, you know, we had them made in Taiwan, and they were really beautiful surgical stainless steel with a glass face. Um, so we spent about 30 grand on that. Um, and we never sold one um, because they were so high-end we had to retail them at 80 bucks and people were like, well, I'll buy this for my kid if it's like a couple of bucks. Um, but my kid's going to lose it. And we thought that people in their twenties and thirties would buy them, but you know, we were wrong. Um, so there was that, there was, um, there was a software, there was a online commerce software startup that I was consulting with and they lost their venture funding. And I bought a non-exclusive right to the software to try and launch it myself. And uh, it was written on Ruby on Rails, and I had to. I couldn't find anybody I could afford to do code, so I thought I'd use freelancers. And you know what? You can't. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, you know, they warned me, but I was sure I could do it. Um, but you know, every time Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or something changes the way they interact with your software, you need to change it ASAP, especially if people are paying for it. So. You're not afraid to try new things, even when no. you've got a big success. You're still experimenting and, and looking for the new thing. You always, I mean, yeah, partly because, you know, you want to be engaged and interested, partly because you can't count on anything to last, no matter how good it is. Um, partly, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who's like, oh, how hard can that be? And then finds out. <laughs> <laughs> how hard can it be to be a one-man really software hard. startup relying on you know uh really busy freelancers who don't come when you call oh that hard right. okay got well, it. you answered that question um, yeah you know and i'll never do that again um okay and but your your current big project you you're really getting back down to earth aren't you in in a very yeah. literal sense uh, tell us about the anatomy set in stone. Okay, so 10 years before I started it, and I started it about four years ago, I did a small, uh, I had a massage therapist who wanted to commission a piece of work for a new office. And I was doing a lot of mosaic back in those days. Later, I kind of stopped because I had 
discovered it was somewhat difficult to sell. Um, but, um, but I, I had done this, um, piece for him. He's like, Oh, I'd like a mosaic for my office. And I was like, Oh, we should do one in a, a, of an anatomical drawing because marble comes in exactly the right colors to do that. And I made a small piece for him, um, that I still have because he never ended up paying for it. But that's okay. It'll be in the exhibit that I'm building. Now. <laughs> um, you know but the thing is i had to make it small because of his budget being small i really wanted to make it life-size and the full figure um and it was kicking around my house for the next decade and i'm looking at it i'm like you know this is really good but it could be so much better and i read this article in the new york times a bunch of years back about traveling exhibits for museums and the um how much museums pay for those and how much they use them. It turns out it's a lot cheaper to rent a touring exhibit that's all ready to go than it is to develop a new exhibit out of your own museum holdings. I mean, you don't have to do all of the research and the planning and et cetera. Um, And so a lot of museums, you know, they have their permanent collection, what's on view, but most of the exhibits that you'll see that are temporary are, are traveling exhibits that somebody has developed and shopped around. And, you know, on the low end, according to this article, you know, a six week exhibit might make 7,500 or 15 grand. Um, Obviously, if it's a giant Picasso exhibit at MoMA or something, you know, it's gonna be millions. But, um, But anyway, I thought, you know, I've always wanted to do these, what I really wanted to do with the anatomical mosaics is, you know, I, I chose the easiest of a set of illustrations um, by Eustachie, who discovered the Eustachian tube and was one of the first modern anatomists. And, you know, so I, I had done the easiest one. Um, and I thought, you know, what if I did the whole set and did it as a touring exhibit? And there are 14 full-size figures in the set that detail different areas of anatomy. And so, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I had not been doing, well, actually it, it came out of two things that happened. One of them was Stagecoach Music Festival, which happens in the same place as Coachella. Um, it's a country music festival. They approached me and said, hey, we'd like you to make a giant mosaic of bottle caps, which is a thing I pioneered too a long time ago. Um, you know, for our festival, and, you know, they paid pretty well to, to do this giant uh, American flag out of Budweiser caps, which normally I would not do an American flag, but doing, out a, doing it out of Budweiser caps had enough, there was enough room for interpretation that I thought it was an interesting piece of work, but I also knew it would really please the crowd at a country music festival, right? Right. <laughs> you know, know your audience, um, but, you know, be a little subversive too. Um, you know, so you it's feel like mantra. an artist, you know, um, yeah. bury something there for the people who look. Um, so, um, so, you know, I did this thing and it was an insane turnaround time. I mean, the thing was like, I think 10 feet high by 14 feet long or something like that. And they only had three months for me to do it. And I would have preferred to have a year because um, the bottle cap mosaics, the way that I do do them are very labor intensive. Um, mm-hmm. And if people want to know, in what way go to my website and look there's a little video 
anyway, so, you know, Stagecoach commissioned this big thing. And then shortly after I got an email from the Museum of Natural History in New York, wanting to license an image of a uh, mosaic I had done years ago of La Sirene, the mermaid, um, in Haitian folklore and religion. Um, there was part glass, part bottle caps, or tail was bottle caps, the rest was glass. And they wanted to license it for a book about a touring exhibit they were doing. And I was like, hey, you know, I'd be willing, I don't have that one anymore. And the photo I have isn't great. I would make you a new one if you wanted to put it in the exhibit. And so they commissioned it. Um, and it is currently touring with their show. And so, the, you know, between doing that huge flag for Stagecoach and then doing the piece for them and doing Mosaic again after 10 years of maybe not working with it, um, you know, and then reading that article about how touring exhibits can make decent money going to museums, I thought, and also I was a little worried because I felt like the middle class might be disappearing and that's who buys my fireballs. Poor people can't afford them and rich people don't really get them. It's people in the middle mm-hmm. class that support me. Um, and I'm like, if they disappear, I need to find some kind of institutional money like music festivals and museums that those people are always going to have money, I think. Um, although maybe not as much museums I hear sometimes. But um, so I thought, okay, this is the perfect opportunity to do this giant project I've always wanted of, of the anatomical mosaics and marble. And I knew that I could do a credible job of the simpler ones, um, at least credible, if, if not great. Um, but I really, I didn't know how, how much, how well can I pull this off? And the only way to find out was to try. And um, so I, you know, ordered a few tons of stone um, because, you know, one thing is if, if you want consistency through a large piece, you've got to get most of the stone up front because even if you buy it from the same store or the same quarry, it's organic. You know, if they've moved a hundred feet down the mine, oh, the color is right. not going to be yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I had I mean, to get... It's not like you can just go to the art shop and say, I'll have another tube of that. No, you, you really can't. <laughs> and I mean, one of the things that's great about what I'm doing is because stone is an organic, natural material even within one box of the same stone, there's going to be a lot of color variation and you can use that to your advantage if you do. (laughs) You know what I mean? You could just treat it as one color, but it's not. And you don't have to. You can be very subtle. Um, And, you know, I'm working currently on the eighth mosaic of a series of 14. It was originally going to be 12 because it's a nice number. And I wasn't going to do the two that detail the skeletons at first because um going in i i thought oh those aren't going to be as good because i can't do as much shading as i can with the muscles but as i've been doing the the first seven that i've finished there are bits of exposed bone and i've bought more and more types of stone to work with as i've gone um and i i feel like i've really gotten very good at shading the bones there's I think it was number six that the rib cage I did for that one. It's like trompe l'oeil. It's it's it's, it's, it, it's really phenomenal. We've we've got to. I mean, obviously, you go to if you're listening to this, go to johntunger.com and check out the mosaics. And I'll, we'll make sure we have got some images and links in the show notes. But it's phenomenally complex what you've done. It's like a filigree mm-hmm. of 
ribs and vertebrae and muscles. I mean, and yet you're using these really big, heavy tools to make it. And no, they're, they're marble. But, but no, how do you actually physically do that? Okay, so I've got like, you know, a contractor's DeWalt wet saw that I use to cut 12-inch tiles into strips. Um, and I've gotten good enough that some of the stone I can cut as thin as a single millimeter. And when I bought the saw and bought the stone, both the saw company and the stone company told me that's not going to work. <laughs> and I was like, how hard can it be? It's <laughs> like catnip for you, isn't it? <laughs> right? Yeah, you just keep telling him what he can't do, and he'll keep doing it just to show you, <laughs> which is a, a favorite line from a children's book called Wiley and the Hairy Man, South African trickster fable. Great book. Well, well, didn't you, isn't one of your lines you always used to say to me, your impossibility remediation is your speciality? It, it is, because, you know, people are like, oh, that's not, that, you know, that's impossible. And I'm like, well, you know, A, because you think so, you haven't tried. And B, you keep telling me how it's not possible and I'm going to catch the spot where you're missing it and be like, but if we did this, I mean, I, I just don't, there aren't very many things that are really impossible, you know? And, you know, maybe people will never fly around without airplanes, but they can fly, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, you know, it, it, a lot of the time it's, you have to reframe the, you know, okay, I can't flap my arms and fly, but damned if I can't get in a balloon or an airplane or a <laughs> hang glider, right. Right. <laughs> base jumping, <laughs> you know, there are lots of ways yeah. to fly. Um, so anyway, you know, um, but yeah, that, that one was really interesting because it was the first one where, well, before that I did two with the nerves and those were insanely complicated and took much longer and I had to buy new tools. And the first two or three I did, all I used was the saw to cut strips. I had regular nippers that used to break the stone, um, tweezers for picking things up, an exacto blade for nudging things. Um, and about halfway through the third one i realized i had a really cheap black and decker grinding wheel for sharpening knives that i could use to shape the stone a little um wasn't made for that um but in some ways worked better than some of the things that are made for that um you know and then when i decided to do the eyes out of rubies well rubies have a mose hardness of nine out of ten the only thing harder than a ruby is a diamond hmm. um and somebody gifted me on Facebook two brown sapphires um, that were already polished that I used for the eyes in the first two. Um, and yeah, you can't cut those with town nippers or with a carbon grinding <laughs> wheel. Um, I ended up holding them up to the to the wet saw for cutting tile, which is horrendously dangerous and stupid. Um, don't, don't try this at home, folks. Yeah, don't. You know, I'm holding. I'm, I'm holding with my fingers a little tiny ruby the size of you know your iris yeah. in my fingers to a you know very high speed ten inch diamond saw blade, but it worked. You know, so. Well, an, ex an example, too, of when I said in the beginning, you have to buy all the stone at once. I did not buy enough of the blinding white marble that I'm using for the nerves um, because I didn't realize I was going to need as much of it. Um, and I also thought blinding white marble that's perfectly pure white should be easy to come by. Not so much, it turns out. 
Hmm. And I bought some from the same quarry, from the same store when I started running out. But it's got a yellowish tint to it. It's not the same. Um, But that was good for doing um, the discs in the spine of this one, which are which are also white, but not quite the same white as the nerves. So I found a use for it, is what I'm saying. Um, but also, okay. I don't know, you know, I've got precious little left to do the nerves, and I've got to get them all done. It's nerve-wracking. Okay. And how many have you done, and how many are there, are there left to go? There are seven completely finished. Uh, there is one that is very close to done. I have the face, the hand, and below the knees to the feet. Um I'd love to say that's going to be done in a couple of weeks, but it's probably going to take another month. I've been on it for about three months, maybe four. Um, You know, that's the other thing. I thought this project was going to take me maybe two years, and here I am halfway done, a little better, you know, one, one mosaic better than halfway, and it's been four years. Um, Right. And... I would really start, I would really like to start trying to book it into museums because they schedule two, three, four, five years out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to wait five years when I'm done. Um, but I'm also really glad I didn't schedule it for two years out <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, it would have been awkward. It would have been awkward. Um, you know, I was talking to my friend Austin Cleon the other day, and I'm like, you know, I see a lot of people who want to stretch themselves and or maybe there's something they really want to do that they're just not innately good at, and they'll bang their head against that wall over and over and over, and if they're lucky, they get good at it someday. Um, but I feel like the thing to do is you know, look at what you are good at and then do that and keep raising the bar. You know, do what comes naturally to you that's easy, and then just keep making it harder and harder. And I think that's... That's a good recipe for doing really good work. Yeah, it sounds, apparently cyclists have a saying, it never gets easier, you just go faster. Right, you know, and and so, you know, like I don't think of myself as someone who can draw. I can, but it's not my strength. And so that's not what I focus on. I mean, I could take some drawing classes and get good at it, but I don't need to be good at it to do the work that I like doing. Yeah. Um, you know, and the drawings I'm working from for the mosaics are from the 16th century. Somebody else drew them. Um, and, you know, what I'm bringing to it creatively is, you know, arranging the stuff, but, but really studying the drawings so closely to be able to do it in stone. And the thing that's interesting is that the marble I'm using while not photorealistic, is absolutely accurate to the colors in the photos. It's a little different than the colors in the drawings, but it's truer. Mm-hmm. It's truer to the actual, you know, meat. Um, and I love that. I, I just love, you know, there are places where I, I, I spend a lot of time on hands, feet, the face. Um, if there's a penis, I give that special attention because you know people are going to look you know i also know there are places that just aren't going to want to show up because oh my god there's a penis but um (laughs) it's so inappropriate well you know 
people have them. Um, and, and there is one on the, on the seventh mosaic I did where it was sort of two tone and I could have used two different colors of stone for it and made two pieces. But instead what I did is I, when I'm, when I'm doing a, 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 an intricate piece, what I'll do is I'll put tape down over the drawing and I'll draw the shape with a Sharpie or pencil and then I'll s- stick that tape onto the stone so I can cut it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can look through the tape to sort of find the exact right place to get the color that you want. And so there is this one penis that's just one piece, but it's two colors and there are some little moles or whatever in the drawing that I found a piece. I cut it from the middle of a 12-inch tile, but it matches the drawing freaking exactly in one piece. You know, um, and there's a couple other places where I've done that where I really needed it to be just right. And I went through, you know, 40 or 50 square feet of stone to find a couple inches that were just right. Hmm. Um, well, John, I hope your dream of having it displayed in a museum comes true so that we can all we can all admire the, the real amazing attention to detail you've got with this by the sound of it. I mean, I, obviously, we've seen... We can see interviews on um, images online, but as you said to me, there's nothing like seeing it full size. So I do hope we'll get to see that someday soon. Well, one one thing I should say, I wish I'd gotten that earlier, but you know what? I really want to, when, when it exhibits, I want the original drawings hung next to them so that you can compare them because I think that's much more interesting to compare them than to yeah. just see them. And what I yeah. really hope we're so accustomed to just looking at tons, you know, flipping through Instagram or whatever, seeing so many images for just seconds. I really want to build something that you could spend a day looking at, you know, backing up and seeing it resolve into a really clean image and then zooming in on the detail and looking. I, I hope that it will inspire that kind of, I hope it will inspire the audience to look as deeply as I had to to make it. I mean, maybe not quite that deep, but to really look and see, I, I hope it can inspire that. I think people would be well served to spend some time really just looking hard at a thing. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm sure it will inspire. I'm sure it will. So, John, you've taken us on an amazing journey today. And, you know, listening to you, I'm really struck how your work and how your business has evolved you've reinvented yourself several times along the way looking back and maybe bearing in mind somebody listening to this and thinking okay well things are very different from me to when john was first starting out any words of advice to people on at this point fairly early on into the 21st century but quite mature in terms of where the internet's taken us any words of advice that you have for how people can you know, carve out their own creative path in maybe in a similarly original way to the way you've done it? Well, one thing would be to think about the long-term life of what you're making. I mean, these things that I'm making right now, this is, this is my bid for immortality, immortality here, right? Um, mm-hmm. The fireballs, because they're so thick, will last hundreds of years. And I thought that was pretty good. Um, but, you know, we dig up mosaics from Pompeii that are thousands of years old, and there's no exactly. reason to think that these will not. And also, there's no, 
you know, as somebody pointed out, there's there's no statute of limitations on people are always interested in people and these depict people in a scientific manner. Like, should we evolve to have more arms or something? These will still be interesting because we didn't used to. They're like fossils. These should be interesting basically for as long as there are people and they should last about that long. So that's one thing. Think about it's always exciting to do whatever is brand new and shiny, you know, 3D printing with plastic or whatever. Yeah. I suppose in a, in a bad way, plastic also lasts forever. <laughs> but not necessarily intact if your art yeah, becomes microplastic. Yeah, you know, so, so think about the future and think about the past. Like, you know, when I go to New York City and I look at all of the amazingly intricate stone carving on old skyscrapers or the cathedrals or like i look at that and i feel like a hack <laughs> you know mm. um i'm just like you know and and even here in hudson i mean just intricately carved stone used to be something we did if we were going to make a building that anybody cared about we don't do that now mm. um but i think i think there is something really satisfying about learning a craft well enough to really make something that will last for centuries. And, and I would like to encourage people, I know the temptation is to use the internet as the primary platform for showing your work, and you should do that, obviously. Um, but look for real-world opportunities. Look for places where people can see your work life-size in real life instead of, you know, all of the photos being the same size on any given platform and rather small. Look for places where your work can really stand in front of people. And it could be anywhere. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's, that sounds like a great creative challenge that we can leave the listener with. So if you're new to the show, this is one thing I always ask my guests to do at the end of every interview is set you, the listener, a creative challenge, something that you can do or at least get started on within seven days of listening to this recording. And it should stretch you creatively, and by definition, then it will stretch you as a person too. So, so John, your challenge to set the listener is to go out and look for the opportunity that may be out there in the world, the real world around you, rather than the online digital space, which is so crowded these days. Yeah. Re remember, we've got a whole planet, and it's pretty big. <laughs> right. It's been about even and you can than walk out into it for free. Yeah, you don't get disconnected. Yeah, the bandwidth is insane. <laughs> yeah, it's so high res. You don't have to wait for it to be downloaded. Yeah, surround sound. <laughs> Great stereo. It is. It's a really good system. So, you know, I forgot for almost a decade that there was a real world out there, and I, I, I you know, I stopped showing in galleries and stuff because it was inconvenient to move physical objects when I could mm -hmm. just. But, you know, it's still there. And, you know, honestly, I think because everyone's focused on the Internet more than anything, there might be more opportunity now in the physical world than there was for a while. I could be wrong about that. but Okay. Okay. That's a great challenge, John. So, okay. And if we may be permitted to dip back online for just a moment, your website is johntunger.com. Um, I really encourage anyone who's who's you know listening to this go and check out the amazing 
images and videos on John's site. It's not as good as the real thing, but you know, frankly, it's 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 better than not looking at all. And <laughs> any anywhere else that people can go and engage with your work, John. Uh, that's the main space. Um, you know, I mean, of course, I've got a store on Etsy. I've got um, things around the web: um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and my username anywhere would be John T. Unger. So. Um, but the, the place where you can get the best sense of what I do and the depth and breadth and history of it and why I did it would be my site, would be johntunker.com. Excellent. So, John, as always, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've, I've learned a lot. I've been entertained by your uh, stories, and I'm sure I'm far from being the only one today. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me, Mark. It's good to touch base again. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast, at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like my help applying the ideas in the show to your own situation, you're welcome to join us in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group at patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. And I'll be in touch with you as soon as I've reviewed your answers. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.